This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Kailish Satyarthi, a human rights activist from India. Kailish has led the rescue of over 78,000 child slaves and developed a successful model for their education and rehabilitation. Kailish has founded the single largest civil society network for exploited children in the world, the Global March Against Child Labor. Global March is a worldwide coalition of NGOs, teachers unions, and trade unions. Kalish is a member of a high-level group formed by UNESCO, Education for All, comprised of presidents, prime ministers, and UN agency heads. He has addressed the United Nations General Assembly, the International Labor, Labor Conference, and many other highly visible and powerful international organizations. His work has been featured on news channels and in publications all over the world, including CNN, BBC, the Japan Broadcasting Corporation, Times London, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. His work has been recognized in Kerry Kennedy's book, Speaking Truth to Power, where his fight against child labor was honored among the efforts of the top 50 human rights defenders in the world, including Nobel laureates Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Ili Wiesel, and the Dalai Lama. In addition to the Global March Against Child Labor, Kalish has founded and led other organizations, including the Global, the Global Campaign for Education and the Rugmark Foundation, now known as Goodweave. Kalish has been honored with so many awards for advancing democracy, human rights, and international peace, too many to list here today, and he is also an Ashoka Fellow. That's an experience we humbly share. Kalish, thank you so much for joining us for this dialogue today. Great. Thank you so much, David. It's also my pleasure and honor to be interviewed by another Ashoka fellow. And that is that is something very special for me. Terrific. I, I would like to uh, for you to take us back to the beginning. I, I understand that you, like many social entrepreneurs, gave up a very lucrative career as an electrical engineer um, to really lead this huge international movement against child servitude. And if you could take us back to the beginning, if you can, take us to that moment where you decided to switch your path, where you decided to begin this other life-changing work, this incredible journey, and tell us about the story. How did that happen? Well, um, it was uh, not just one single incident which has changed, but it has grown slowly. It was the first day of my schooling. When I went to school, I saw a boy of my age. Uh, he was also five or six years old, as I was. Uh, this boy was a shoe shiner or a cobbler. Um, and looking at us, whether we are going to give him some job. And when I entered into school, I was uh, wearing new clothes and new shoes and new books and everything and excited. So. I might have seen children working somewhere, but this was the first time when I saw such a, a sharp contrast. And I asked my teacher, and he replied, 
uh, that these are poor children and they work. It is nothing new. I also asked my headmaster and uh, he replied more or less in the same manner. So when I came back from the school, I saw the boy working the next day and next day. And uh, I was slowly becoming very angry and um, uh, very upset. And I asked to my friends and relatives, um, everybody tried to just uh, calm me down that they are simply poor children and if they don't work, they will starve, etc. One day I gathered all my courage and asked to his father, who was also used to sit and work beside the boy, that why don't you send your son to school, sir? And he replied after a while, said that I never thought on it um, because I have been working since my childhood. My father had been working since his childhood. And then he very sadly uh, said one single thing in Hindi. That means we are born to work. And it, it was a big shock for me that why some people are born to work and why some other children like me are born to have big dreams and uh, and make all the endeavor to make them true. Uh, we never thought that we are born to work. We thought that we are born to work, uh, born to become engineers, doctor, professors, etc. So that was uh, something a seed uh, put in my heart somewhere, and it slowly grew. So even in my student life, I tried to uh, initiate many activities. I set up a book bank for children. I collected old used books and tried to help out the children who were compelled to leave the schooling because their parents could not afford the textbooks, which were very expensive. I tried to collect some money to uh, give the fee in the schools and so on. So that, that went on. So even my, my parents wanted to make me an engineer and they, um, I was good in study uh, with the grace of God. And um, finally, I became an engineer and I started teaching. But I was making up my mind very slowly that one day I will give up all this and I, I have to do something else for these poor children. And so t tell us about that because, you know, there is a big difference. I, in, my, in my life, I've experienced this. There's a big difference between people who are concerned about a cause and maybe they give some money or they pay some attention to it. They may re maybe read a book. And then there is a, another kind of person who says, you know what, I am going to do something to change this. And that transition is something that we're very interested in, uh, how people form that and what motivates them. So if you could tell me, because, you know, that part of the journey in which you said, uh, you know, and many Ashoka fellows have had this, it, it's a moment in which they say, you know, I must walk away from the work that I'm doing because this will require all of my time and energy. Could you take us to that part of the journey and how you made that decision? Uh, well, when I was uh, teaching in the university, and I also worked as transformer design engineer for some time, um, I was uh, struggling in myself that um, if I if I earn good amount of money and help out the poor children, perhaps that is not going to solve the problem because I never believed in charity. I never thought that if we help out the children and feel good, it does not uh, make sense for a longer time. So for a sustainable solution, we have to see that uh, where the problem lies. If the children are enslaved, they have to be freed and we have to fight for good laws and implementation of laws if there are any. We have to fight for their economic uh, rehabilitation and things like that. So these things were there in my mind, but I had no path because there was no 
other example in my country or in my knowledge anywhere in the world where uh, somebody has been working against child slavery in uh, uh, early 80s so uh, it was difficult and i also realized that many of the things which we are using are produced by children and we are happily using it i saw some uh, children working in uh, stone quarries uh, children were making bricks and we are using all those bricks in our houses and we live with uh, with comfort so these things were there in my mind but i decided that i have to fight them out um in more systematic and sustainable manner and find try to find some more innovative solutions rather than just uh, using some of the traditional conventional practices of collecting money and helping a few number of children so this problem is so hard i think for people in the west to really wrap their minds around i think it's it's something that um is almost unimaginable to somebody living in a in a modern society and i wonder if you could help us by by painting a picture of the current status of this problem the magnitude of the problem um for people who may not have thought about it and i, and I think you are so right i think people unfortunately constantly use products and and things and they just say oh my god look how wonderful this is so inexpensive they don't realize that they're benefiting from someone that is enslaved their labor tell us a little bit about the magnitude of this problem and and i have i'm sorry to ask such a long question but i have this question has been something on my mind when you got into this work did you realize the magnitude of what you were dealing with or was that something that you discovered as you looked into the problem uh, well i will begin with the second part of your question yeah. <laughs> frankly speaking i had no idea about the magnitude of the problem and the details and the places where so many children have been working in my country i had no knowledge about the problem um, uh, beyond my country so it was very hard because there were no there were not um, too many researches or i would say there was not a single research available uh, those days all those researches um, were related to uh, a century ago when the child labor has been involved in um, cleaning up the chimneys um, and uh, things like that in in england or in other places but uh, i had no knowledge about the problem uh, in detail uh, and the magnitude uh, unfortunately uh, then slowly i tried to understand and uh, uh, we kept on struggling that there should be some sort of measurement some sort of uh, mapping uh, or at least an estimate and finally the international labor organization started uh, some sort of research about the magnitude of the problem and today unfortunately 168 million children are still working as full time child laborers um, uh, worldwide um in my own country the non governmental statistics um, uh, claim that at least 50 million children are working in full time jobs so um it's a serious problem and uh, almost 60% of these children are working in agriculture sector and rest are involved in making many of those um, beautiful things including uh, apparels and um, uh garments and uh, shoes um, bags and leather goods and many things which we use comfortably uh, many children are involved in uh, making 
footballs, uh, the soccer balls or uh, cricket balls and other uh, sporting material, uh, toys which are used worldwide. Uh, so it's widespread problem. Uh, large number of children are still being used as child prostitutes or for pornographic purposes. Uh, children are given uh, guns and bombs in their hands instead of books and toys in many parts of the world um, in insurgency prone areas. Um, uh, so this this is a serious problem. In in and so again, this is I think a shocking thing, and it and it is interesting that even in the societies where this is happening, it may not be well understood, and I think that's something that uh, is very it's very interesting. I um I wanted to ask you, having liberated so many people from this bondage, if you could perhaps pick one or two specific stories that you could share with us to personalize this, because I think when you understand the journey of one child to freedom, it may really um, help people to to visualize what is happening. And particularly, if you could comment on the economic system that produces this, I understand that it has to do with uh, people being in poverty, uh, being loaned money, and then as as a security uh, against that debt, they actually sell their children into this slavery. Could you could you give us a story of a specific child to help us understand? Well, um, uh, let me talk about uh, uh, a young lady. Uh, her name is Devli, and uh, uh, in fact, uh, for uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, my people have been struggling to stop uh, uh, her relatives who wanted to get her married at her early age. Um, so this this story is fresh to my mind. Devli was freed by me and my colleagues um, some years ago from a stone mine, stone quarry. Um, she was born and grew up there. Her parents were born and grew up there. And the grandparents were the one who were trafficked from a different state to work in that area where they started working as forced or bonded slave laborers uh, in the stone quarrying. And their children uh, were born and grew up and married and then their grandchildren. So uh, we came to know through some source that the women are being uh, raped and uh, abused and the People are held in slavery, so we have to do something. So one day, I decided to go and conduct a rescue operation. Uh, that was quite a secret um, operation because um, secrecy and uh, swiftness, speed uh, matters a lot. Uh, these people uh, are like mafia. If they come to know even one or two minutes in advance, they can kill us anytime and they can gather and hit on us. Uh, so it's it's always a very dangerous operation. So we have to do some recce work in the whole night and early in the morning when we knew that even this uh, watchman used to go for toilet and other things, we can go and rescue those people. Uh, so we decided to go and rescue. Uh, finally, we brought uh, many people out um, and I decided to drive myself my car and a group of children were sitting in my car and it was... Uh, followed by a big truck where rest of the adult people were uh, being driven to a safer place. 
So when I was coming back, I thought that uh, let me try to ease uh, these children because they were traumatized. They could not understand understand what was happening with them. They could not comprehend freedom. They have never experienced any help in their life or any respect or any care, any protection in their life. So it, it was in itself a big shock for those children who were sitting with me in my car. And uh, I thought that there are some bananas uh, left over from the night and these children can eat bananas. I told those children to eat bananas, including this beautiful uh, girl. She was about uh, six, seven year old that time. Uh, so I told that, uh, why don't you share those bananas which are lying in the back of the car? Um, they picked up something um, and one of them asked to another child that uh, these things do not look like onion. And the boy said to the girl, uh, the same year old boy, um, he said that they do not look like potato uh, because these children have never seen bananas or any fruit in their life. Uh, they have never tasted them. So, um, and it was such a common thing, banana. I could not understand that uh, these these children have never seen bananas. Uh, so, even without um, uh, uh, thinking so much, I told those children to eat those bananas and I uh, requested them that they are sweet things and they have never uh, eaten any sweet things. But even then I was trying to convince them. And suddenly I saw that this girl was eating banana without uh, peeling it away. <laughs> and then I realized, and then I realized that what a difference between uh, the so-called civilization and the people who are in slavery. It's something like centuries old situation which is still exists uh, in, in, in the modern India. Um, it was uh, such a painful experience to see this. Um, then I uh, taught them how to peel and eat the banana. And suddenly the girl uh, came to me. She was sitting beside, but she asked him that, uh, oh man, why didn't you come early? I, I knew that it was not just because the taste of the banana, it might be the immediate response, but she gathered all the courage to ask to me because she knew that her younger uh, brother died in the, in, in the queries because there was no medication. She has also experienced that her mother has been sexually abused and raped and when her uh, relatives, including the brother of uh, her father, tried to save that woman, he was beaten up and branded with the uh, cigarettes. So she has experienced all those things. And that's why the girl has an anger and some hope. And she was asking, why didn't you come early? Um, and it was such a, uh, such a question to me and to rest of the world who talk of civilization and cultures and democracy and constitutions and laws and so on, religions. Uh, this was the question to everyone that what, why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? Why? How can we tolerate slavery on this planet for a single minute? And if such a small girl is asking, why didn't I go early? Or why didn't the people go early to, to help them out and free them? So freedom is such a birthright of every human being and which is being tarnished and, and robbed of. Um, and then this girl uh, brought to my center and she got educated. But the most important thing is that when this girl realized that she has to do something for others, she has taken a, 
a kind of pledge in herself that she is not going to leave any girl out of school. So she herself went to his school and she brought more than 30 girls and boys from her community to a local school, making sure that no child will work and every child will go to school because she has understood deeply uh, the value in education. And finally, uh, uh, some years ago, uh, this girl has been chosen to speak in a special uh, session in the United Nations General Assembly time. Uh, that was a session organized on education, and Dave Lee has spoken uh, on it, and several presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens and so on were listening to her. And she was the star that day in uh, United Nations building. Um, and because of her uh, demand and very simple and pure demand for education, many governments have uh, uh, pledged to put more money to help in education for poor countries. So that's an incredible story. I mean, just that transition from being actually enslaved in a stone quarry all the way to making an address at the United Nations and to becoming a leader in the movement uh, to uh, free other children and see that they're educated. Such an inspiring um, story. And and if I'm correct, I believe that incident that you described is actually, it, it is available in a YouTube video with Robert Redford yes. as the, as the uh, um, uh, narrator. Uh, and uh, it's very, I would really encourage our listeners to, to see it because it's, it's, it may sound unbelievable, but when you actually see it, the video, it is just unbelievable. It is even more unbelievable to watch the video. Um, one of the things that I saw watching the video is something you spoke about, which I really never understood until I saw the video, which is that this is a, this journey from freedom to freedom can be a very frightening thing for the people who are in bondage because they have only ever known that bondage. Is that correct? Yes, actually, this is also a fight against the the age-old mindset in the society, but particularly the mindset of the people who were born and grew up as bonded laborer or slave laborers. Um, so that's the kind of victims of intergenerational slavery, um, and their mindset goes like that. Uh, so as I said before, that they cannot really realize or comprehend, um, you know, the feeling of uh, freedom. So it's always a struggle. Um, uh, but um, I experienced in thousands of cases, thousands of cases, that um, once uh, they are out of those clutches of uh, the masters and, and, and mafias and uh, think that they can go and flee where they, uh, they like, um, we see a sudden change in their behavior, in their, uh, their minds open. Of course, uh, they don't know, they are confused what to do, but definitely uh, every human being uh, likes freedom than slavery. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, 
the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Kailash Sadyarti, Nobel Peace Prize winner and founder of the Global March Against Child Labor. So once they experience freedom, they are, in the, in the words of that girl saying, why didn't you come earlier? <laughs> Which is a yeah, very yeah. powerful question and, um, and a beautiful illustration of, of really the transition in their mindset. Um, I'd like to really help our listeners understand this in a policy context. I think that you've helped people to sort of visualize how terrible this problem is. You gave a speech in October, which I found helpful, in which you talked about six pressing emergencies. And I think it might be helpful if we could touch on these because it would give a sense of the policy response that Global March is making. And, um, you know, it's the educational emergency, the enforcement emergency, employment, economic, ecological, ethical. It's, it's quite a bit to go through. But if you could pick out a few of the most important elements of that and share your thoughts about what it is that Global March is doing to address this problem. Well, we are uh, fighting against all those emergencies and uh, trying to uh, to generate uh, mass movement as well as uh, political will to address those emergencies. Um, it is not just a matter of suggesting the politicians and lawmakers, but also uh, trying to uh, build the uh, awareness um, in the community itself because uh, ordinary people must realize that if the children are allowed to work then the poverty will continue the unemployment will continue as we know that uh, 168 million children are in full-time jobs and almost 200 million adults are jobless uh, in many countries and many situations it has been uh, studied and, and revealed uh, that uh, child labor and adult unemployment forms a vicious circle where the children are preferred in jobs because they are cheap labor and the adults, their very parents remain jobless. They are not preferred in jobs because they are expensive labor. Um, so uh, it goes on like that. Uh, but for me, the most important thing is the question of morals and ethics. Uh, the people who know um, that these things are made by children and if they keep on using those products they are equally responsible or rather guilty or rather sinner in the perpetuation of this modern day slavery um, they have to strongly oppose it and demand for those goods which are free of child labor they have to raise their voices uh, and today the, 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 the social media is so cheap and so easy to use uh, that could be used. Um, and also the politicians, for instance, if the ordinary people um, start raising these moral questions, then they will definitely ask their politicians. They must ask their politicians and lawmakers and enforcement authorities that the constitution provi constitutional provisions are there, the laws are there, uh, the international uh, norms and standards and treaties are there. So why not these things are implemented? Uh, 
the politicians keep on making big promises uh, for children, but these prom promises are never uh, properly uh, addressed and um, realized. So this is also ethical question. Uh, the ethical question also related to the budgetary allocations that how much money we spend on militaries, for instance, uh, the, the global expenditure, as we know, on uh, military is more than a trillion dollars. Uh, and we all know that just three days of military annual military expenditure can solve the problem of education of children in the world. We must know that uh, just uh, one-sixth of what the Europeans spent on uh, cosmetics can solve the problem of education of children in the world. So these are all moral and ethical questions, um, and that has to be addressed. Uh, through consciousness raising and awareness building. Uh, the second important uh, issue for me is the education. There is no compromise on it. As I said that every child is born with a birthright of freedom. I also added that every child is born with a birthright of learning and there must not be any barrier on, barrier on learning. And the biggest barrier or hurdle on learning or education is child labor. So there is no excuse for that. There is no negotiation for it. And, um, and we all know that in the global economy, uh, the most important factor for empowerment and participation in market economy uh, and prosperity is, uh, is knowledge and education. So um, that cannot be compromised at any cost. So the governments must realize, but the ordinary people must also demand that education is key. And many a times I strongly feel that education is the biggest safeguard uh, or protection against uh, growing terrorism uh, globally. Uh, we are all victims of it. Uh, we live in, a, in an environment of fear, and that could be solved only when we are able to impart good quality, rational, scientific, education for all children on this planet. So education is uh, non-negotiable. Right. So I think that one of the things that is interesting about your work is that you really have increased the international commitment around the world to uh, adopting standards that, that uh, preclude and exclude child labor but you've also really focused on the fact that these laws and standards are often not enforced. So part of your work is involved in just consciousness raising to get the uh, governments and the societies that have these laws to enforce them. I, do I understand that's a major initiative that you have? Is that true? Yeah, it's also true because... Um as you already mentioned, that one of the emergencies I'm talking about is the enforcement emergency. Even if the laws are made at local level and uh, international laws are, uh, are enacted and adopted, they are not going to be implemented until unless uh, we have strong uh, voices uh, and awareness among the people and demand to use those laws. Uh, and I often say that laws are nothing but uh, uh, a dead weapon. Uh, we need strong hands to use those weapons or those tools. And these strong hands have to be built through awareness and uh, creating you know, mass mobilization and demand from the people and, and the empowerment of victims who, who can demand for the uh, better implementation of laws. But this implementation also relate to 
to the accountability mechanism that how um, the governments are held accountable, how the businesses are held accountable, the international corporations who are minting money out of the sweat and blood of children worldwide, in, especially in the poor countries, through their supply chains and so on, uh, they should be held accountable through the international uh, legislature mechanisms. So that's I understand that, and I think our I think our listeners will will really understand that that idea that it's so important to get the society to uh, enforce these laws and standards so that this is eradicated. I think another very important part of your work is this thing that you just mentioned, this idea about not made by children. And then you also have done this uh, a similar kind of an approach with the rug industry, my understanding, which is where what and this is very innovative. It's because what you're really trying to do, if I understand this right, is use the force of the international markets to make this uh, to use that economic lever. Um, against this practice. If you could tell us about that, because I think it's a very different strategy, very creative, very important, and one in which you need these uh, modern, uh, you know, uh, uh, more economically developed countries really have to be partners because what we have to do, right, is explain to people that you should not buy these products unless you feel certain that child slave labor has not been used in their production. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, when I started freeing child slaves from uh, rugs industry, uh, I personally realized that on one hand, I'm freeing uh, say, 20 or 200 children after all efforts and preparations and energy as slave laborers uh, because of the demands coming from the consumers and demand of a cheap carpet, cheap rug comes from United States or from Europe. And um, that has compelled me to think for a, a different solution because I knew that the local police and uh, law enforcement agencies uh, were connived with um, uh, these uh, uh, slave masters and uh, the rug exporters and so on. So it was not easy. And the victims themselves, the children have no voices and their parents were uh, very poor, uh, very weak um, in society, especially in Indian society, they belong to low caste and so on. So um, these problems got multiplied. But I realized that consumers have tremendous power in growing economies and uh, the market uh, domination. So why not the consumer's consciousness be uh, evolved and tapped and translated into, um, into economic action where they can pressurize um, uh, the entire market uh, to behave uh, more ethically and human. And that was uh, something very difficult to imagine those days in, say, uh, mid-80s or so on, or late-80s. Um, but I realized that every human being has a heart. And if uh, I'm able to properly bring strong evidences and rationals uh, before the consumers that, look, the rugs you are buying um, are made by child slaves and you are 
morally guilty if you keep on using it. It was a big challenge. Nobody was there to listen and uh, take up this um, cause with me. It was very hard. It took me some years. But finally, I was succeeded in launching this campaign in Germany and United States and other European countries. And it got um, such a great response. It was like wildfire. Uh, everybody started asking that, yes, we are using Indian or Nepalese Pakistani carpets and they are made by children and what to do with that. I was not against the carpet industry as whole. I was not against the rugs as whole because the people need rugs to uh, put in their drawing rooms and, and so on. Um, so we have to look for some solution of social labeling through uh, some sort of voluntary inspection mechanism. And that has been quite uh, useful and um, got a lot of uh, response. And finally, we were able to launch this Ragmar, which is now known as Good Weep. Um, and let me tell you that as a result, it's a success story that according to uh, U.S. Department of Labor's studies, uh, the number of child laborers, and most of them were slaves in South Asia uh, in, in mid-90s, was more than a million. But uh, the newest studies reveal that the number has gone down to uh, hardly 250,000 in entire South Asia, India, Pakistan, and Nepal. This means at least 750,000 children uh, were saved from um, uh, most abusive situations of uh, bonded labor and slavery. Um, and interestingly, uh, their uh, vacancies have been fulfilled by the able-bodied adult people, and many of them uh, must be the parents of these very children. So it, it, it was a great success. But I knew that once the consumers are conscious about the rugs they are using, this consciousness could not be confined to rugs alone. The people will demand child labor-free uh, footballs or child labor-free uh, shoes and clothes and so on, and that is happening. Um, child labor-free uh, chocolates from um, uh, uh, produced by child slaves in um, Ivory Coast and Ghana and so on. So this has gone uh, as a kind of uh, a, 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 a big campaign in itself, and the consumers and media and everybody got interested. And th this story began when people have never heard the phrase like corporate social responsibility. Uh, and now no big company can live without CSR. Uh, they have CSR departments, they have CSR people. Uh, but of course, uh, much more has to be done. But I'm telling you that in the future, no um, uh, industry or corporate can at the cost of child slaves uh, and child laborers anywhere in the world. That that is an amazing uh, part of the story, I think, because the of the huge impact and and I think it is again it's a great example of of a social entrepreneur's approach using these market forces in a way to achieve an end that uh, is just and that. Uh, respects human rights and human dignity. So, tremendous example, and the numbers you just illustrated are so um, powerful in terms of those uh, children that are uh, well served by this by this uh, approach. Um, I wanted to and let let me all, let 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 me also add here, David, that as I said before, that uh, I was not against any industry or any you know, uh, any corporation. Uh, and that's why 
we have created an alternate for those who wanted to run their business ethically. We have created platforms not only in carpet industry, but also in uh, uh, many other industries worldwide because we were able to set an example. And then uh, I got personally involved in many of such things, including um, uh, the uh, the sporting goods industry in Pakistan and India, or uh, cocoa beans production, the chocolate industry in uh, West Africa, uh, and so many other industries. So that has become a big thing uh, for all those uh, good doers or uh, good intenders in the industry worldwide. Fantastic. Fantastic. Let me, if you can, I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about where you see the future of this work going. What what are the things that you hope that this movement will accomplish in the next five to ten years? Well, I am uh, quite optimistic uh, and I have a reason for that, not just because I have been optimistic for last 30 years of my struggle, but every single day I see new rays of hope and uh, new promises or new uh, reasons to to trust in my own belief. Uh, for example, um, except a few countries, most of the countries worldwide have ratified the International Labor Organization conventions or the international laws dealing with worst forms of child labor as well as the minimum age of children. Uh, means uh, it is their obligation to do it. Uh, they cannot simply run away because they have already ratified those conventions in their own parliaments. So that was the legal part of it. Then, um, as I mentioned, the CSR part is that uh, most of uh, the industries and companies are quite vigilant about the issue of child labor. And that is also because of the consumer's pressure and campaign and also uh, the media uh, interest. Uh, if uh, any big media uh, comes to know that child labor is involved in uh, a supply chain uh, of a big brand, suddenly it is exposed. The media could not wait even for a single day because I get all these media demands every day. So the interest among the media worldwide is really remarkable and that, is, that helps a lot in transparency. Uh, so the pressure on the industry is very big. Um, then the third thing which is equally promising is uh, the education. Uh, maybe because of um, uh, the economic reasons or not just because of human rights reasons, but also because of the business demand of, uh, you know, skilled workforce um, and uh, uh, broadening and deepening the consumer market, whatever are the reasons, but uh, more spending is being done on education. Uh, on one hand, the poor people have realized the value in education worldwide. Um, as you mentioned that I am the founder and uh, headed the worldwide movement for education, the global campaign for education. And uh, I had an opportunity to meet and talk to the people in the remotest part of the world. And they started realizing the value in education. That was also because of the expansion of information technology and so on. So uh, demand from the poor people as well as the demand in the market economy for the skilled workforce, educated workforce is quite compelling and important. Uh, so the three signals are very clear 
that um, child labor is going to become a history soon. Uh, nobody can, you know, uh, bear uh, with this burden forever. Um, and that is that is very important. Uh, beside many other things like the trade union movement uh, is has been raising this issue uh, much louder and stronger than ever before. The civil society has been actively engaged in this worldwide, and that is also quite remarkable. Uh, so there are many indications which uh, lead us to a situation uh, to believe that child labor uh, would be abolished soon. So, Kailash, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I'd like to shift our focus a little bit and um, talk, have you give us some words of wisdom for uh, people who may be uh, starting their journey as social entrepreneurs interested in changing the world in supporting the kind of work that you do. Um, I wanted to, again, talk, have you talk a little bit about your personal um, experiences. One of the things that I learned in researching uh, for this interview was that you have actually survived some attacks on your own life in terms of doing this work. So it has not come um, without risk. And, um, and I'd like to uh, read something that you said uh, following um, an attack against you in Delhi. Um, very powerful words. You said, during the last 30 years of my humble endeavor, I have strongly believed that freedom is the most precious gift of God, thus natural and divine, whereas slavery is a crime invented and committed by man, and so is a wrong. The fight to change this wrong into a right is definitely dangerous, but victory is certain. I think one of the things that about your work that people will find inspiring is your the level of commitment, your steadfastness in the face of so many obstacles. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where does that come from? How do you develop that? How do you nurture it? Because that kind of a commitment is so essential for somebody that wants to be part of changing the world for the better. What can you, what words of advice can you impart to those who are beginning their journey as social entrepreneurs? Well, I'm, <laughs> it's very difficult, very hard to give an advice. Uh, those who are, uh, you know, starting some sort of social entrepreneurship, uh, they are wonderful, great people. And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm not really uh, much different from them. Uh, I always believe in few things. And one thing is very clear that uh, the whole humankind is one. Uh, no problem could be seen and solved in isolation. The problems are interrelated and so the solutions are interrelated. And I strongly believe that every uh, solution uh, uh, the the, the, the the, the solution uh, could be seen in the problem itself because uh, the problem, uh, the solution is born in the boom of the mother problem. Uh, so I don't think that any problem on this earth is unsolvable. The only thing is that can we, uh, can we um, see it properly, can we realize it properly, can we uh, learn it and then respond um, in such a manner 
that um, uh, some new ideas could be brought into it, some new innovative thinking could be brought into it, and we should be prepared to take those risks also. Um, so I'm, I'm quite confident uh, that uh, uh, a large number of young uh, girls and boys, young uh, sisters and brothers, um, are getting more and more involved in solving the problem of the world, may it be the ecological issues, may it be the social issues, or may it be the business-related issues. So I'm quite uh, hopeful about uh, youngsters who are taking up such issues uh, in the society. Thank you so much, Kailash. I'm sure that many of our listeners will find that inspirational. And I'd like to encourage our listeners to go to your website, which is globalmarch.org, and uh, support uh, you financially and uh, through your foundation, and also uh, to make contact with you to find out what they can do to support the work that you're doing around the world. And I I want to uh, thank you not only for joining us today, Kailash, in this conversation, but to thank you for your extraordinary leadership in ending um, child bondage and child servitude and bringing so many children to freedom. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.